Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. K.J. Drake, Assistant Professor of History at Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario. Dr. Drake, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Zach. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to talking about your brand new book with Oxford University Press. It's called The Flesh of the Word, the Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli, to early orthodoxy. Uh, but before we do that, maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you've written in the past, and uh, what led you to work on this project. Sure. So I went to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln and then studied at Covenant Theological Seminary and then got my PhD at St. Louis University. Uh, this is my first book. I've done some other writing on um, a few topics surrounding the Reformed tradition across the centuries. But this doctrine, the extra Calvinisticum, has really just fascinated me since I first heard of it uh, in a seminary class. I remember being up late one evening, three or four in the morning, explaining the concept over and over to a friend as we were preparing for an exam. And the idea here of kind of this complex mystery of the incarnation of Christ is just always something that stuck with me. And as I was thinking about what to work on for my PhD, this originally was my doctoral thesis, I realized that this doctrine is very important, but very neglected in our understanding of the 16th century, especially beyond the thought in John Calvin specifically. So it was a kind of great marriage between deep fascination and a need in the scholarship to be filled out. Wonderful. Well, you know, this it, it is a really important book, I think. And, um, you know, but it's one that deals with some complicated ideas or, or at least some language that and, and distinctions that are perhaps unfamiliar with uh, some of our listeners. Um, and you handle those things with a lot of clarity in your book. So I'm wondering if we can begin by just having you kind of tell us what is the, the extra Calvinisticum and, and how has previous scholarship seemed to address this topic? Yeah, that's a great place to start. The extra Calvinisticum sounds like a very obscure idea. Um, And in some ways it is, but in other ways it isn't. The best way I can think of to come at this question is it begins with something quite simple. Where is the body of Jesus now? Christians believe that Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so at the same time, he was also divine. And divinity is omnipresent and not limited by time nor space. So how is it that the Christian church understands this? And the extra Calvinisticum argues that Christ, while he is fully present in his incarnate nature, is simultaneously beyond that nature as the divine. Um, Calvin puts it extremely well. So let me let him define it for us. He says, here is something marvelous. The son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continually filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. So the extra is this idea that Christ is fully present in his incarnate nature 
and yet simultaneously beyond it, uh, according to his divinity. And we shouldn't get thrown off by the term extra Calvinisticum. And in some ways that has limited the scholarship by focusing too much on Calvin. This idea goes back to the patristic period. You can find it in the likes of Origen, Athanasius, Augustine, and many others. But the term extra Calvinisticum itself derives from Reformation era polemics over this doctrine between the Reformed Church following Calvin's theology and many others, and the church following after Luther. Originally, the term that was used by some of these Lutherans was Iliad Ipsum Extra Calvinisticum, which literally translated, and this is how it was intended, that strange Calvinistic beyond idea. So <laughs> the Reformed never really used this term for their own doctrine um, until the 20th century. It kind of got picked up. But uh, let me stop there. Does that make sense as a basic definition? Yeah, that's a helpful definition. And so how has previous scholarship seemed to address the topic? So there's been a kind of wide-ranging idea about the extra Calvinisticum throughout the 20th century scholarship, really beginning with the work of Karl Barth, um, one of the most influential Protestant theologians of the 20th century. And Barth was from within the Reformed tradition, but came to reject the extra Calvinisticum. And that kind of um, stood over scholarship on this issue for quite some time. There's not a lot of work on it specifically, the main piece being a work by Willis called Calvin's Catholic Christology. And he's really one of my main foils in the book because he focuses on Calvin specifically and argues that Calvin gets this right and doesn't fall into any of the critiques that Bart would level on this, but that the rest of the Reformed tradition, those who followed Calvin, mistook his theology and ended up making the extra Calvinisticum a philosophic idea. And so this is part of a broader kind of school of scholarship in the 20th century known as the Calvin versus the Calvinist school that argues a basic and fundamental discontinuity between Calvin and the later Reformed tradition. And Willis says, and this holds true for the extra Calvinisticum as well. And in many ways, what my work is trying to do is recontextualize all this, looking beyond just Calvin himself and placing it within a much broader conversation of reform theology in the 16th century. Because Calvin himself didn't write a ton about this. I used a quote from Calvin, but that's one of the few times he addresses this specifically, while some of his contemporaries write entire books on this topic. And so my attempt is to bring a more fully orbed historical understanding of how this idea came about and how it developed over time. Very good. Well, let's talk about the methodology for, for your book then. You've, you've got the four main chapters in the book along with introduction and conclusion. In your introduction, you talk about um, how you're going to proceed diachronically to draw out the ideas that are addressed here. Uh, what can you tell us of this method and, and how you've chosen to structure the book? Yeah, so I was attempting to do a developmental study, so really digging into a couple fundamental questions. When and why did this idea of the extra Calvinisticum become a main point of discussion in the 16th century? And how did it develop into the point where it was a defining distinction between the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions in that? So what I ended up doing was looking at the period and dividing it up into three main controversies in which the extra Calvinisticum played a main part. And the story can't really be told without also understanding an idea in the Lutheran church called ubiquity. 
Um, this is an idea of the ubiquity of Christ's human nature. Coming from Luther and other Lutheran theologians, this argues that Christ's human body at some point, either at the incarnation, the resurrection, or the ascension, there's some debate about that, actually takes to itself the divine property of omnipresence. Therefore, you have a human body that is either actually or potentially omnipresent. And I think you and your readers, or sorry, I think you and your listeners could understand how that might be important when it comes time to discuss the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And so my whole study is kind of working with this back and forth with the Lutherans arguing something and the Reformed responding and developing. And so I begin the book with the Eucharistic controversy proper between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli that takes place in the 1520s through the 40s. This is kind of setting the stage for everything that comes forward. This is where the arguments are first deployed and they're developed. And so I do that in my first two chapters. Chapter one, dealing with some of the early debates between Luther and Zwingli. And there I really try to tease out when did the extra come about and why. Then in the second chapter, I look at the Marburg uh, Colloquy of 1529, where Luther and Zwingli met for the only time, and they debate the Lord's Supper. But what you realize when you look at that debate is it's much more about Christology and the nature of Christ's body generally than it is about the supper itself. From there, I move on to look at how these things develop. There's another Eucharistic controversy in the 1550s to 1570, uh, 1570s, which I look at the work of Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was one of the leading scholars of the second generation of the Reformation. He was often considered, along with uh, John Calvin and Heinrich Bullinger, uh, kind of the leading figure of Reformed theology at this time. And he's responding to increased arguments about ubiquity by a Lutheran theologian named Johann Brenz. And so I look at Brenz and Vermigli kind of in dialogue with each other. And this is done specifically through Vermigli's book, The Dialogue on the Two Natures of Christ, where he attempts to set the Lutheran and the Reformed positions against each other and tries to justify the extra. And then finally, my last chapter looks at this recognized shift in method in this period. In the 1580s, you'll begin to see uh, the entire Protestant camp moving much more towards a scholastic theology using very clear methodology uh, in continuity with some of the medieval scholastic tradition. And so I look at a figure named Anton de la Roche-Chandu, who's uh, not widely known, but he's considered to be the father of Reformed scholastic theology. He was trained under Calvin and uh, Theodore Beza in Geneva and writes an entire scholastic treatise on the nature of Christ's body. And so by moving through these three stages, I hope to see how through polemic engagement with Lutheranism, the reform tradition is forced to be more specific, be more clear, and try to expand the argumentative basis and theological rationale for the extra Calvinist to come. And you kind of see over time, it becomes more elaborate, more sophisticated, and grounded with more and more arguments. Yeah, that's really good. So there's the organization of the book, how you've sort of framed the the arguments. Um, if we look to the meat of the book now, there are really two main questions that I want to ask here, and they're and they're the two main questions I think that your book addresses. Um, and I think it would be helpful to ask those one at a time, and then just have you take the floor. Um, and and the first the first is this. When and why did the reform begin to use the extra? 
Yeah, so that's really the burden of the first chapter of trying to sort out when does this idea come about? And that can sometimes be rather difficult when you're looking at a controversy where you have different things being written back and forth, sometimes in the same year, sometimes in the same month, a couple hundred miles apart. And so it's difficult sometimes to assess where does an idea exactly come from? But through my study, I was able to establish that contrary to what the scholarship had said, uh, it's actually Ulrich Zwingli, the reformer of Zurich, who is the first to deploy the extra Calvinistica. He does this in a work called On the Lord's Supper in February of 1526. And his main point here is to argue against the Roman Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. So in the Roman Catholic understanding, Christ's body and blood are transubstantiated into the bread and the wine. So the bread and the wine become in substance the body and blood of Christ. Zwingli argues, picking up some ideas he might have heard from certain medieval figures, that this can't be the case because Christ's body has ascended into heaven and it's a human body. And so it must be in a place. So he argues that no, because Christ is in heaven, according to his body, he cannot simultaneously be in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And so Zwingli uses this initially as an argument against all corporeal presence in the Lord's Supper. Um, and this is kind of his main idea. Luther will come along after this in a book published later in 1526 to argue against that idea by saying that Christ's body can become ubiquitous or omnipresent and therefore can be on all the altars of the church throughout the world. It's out of this initial clash between Zwingli's rejection of corporeal Eucharistic presence and Luther's affirmation of the potential ubiquity of Christ's human nature that the entire rest of the debate spins out. And in some ways, this is why the extra Calvinisticum becomes a doctrine in the 16th century. As I mentioned, it's, uh, the idea is mentioned before in the patristic period, but always kind of in passing as a act of praise. Isn't this an amazing thing that Christ was incarnate and yet omnipresent at the same time? And then they kind of move on. But with the debate between Luther and Zwingli, it now had to be defended and expounded and had to be articulated according to scripture, philosophical reason and philosophical reason as well. Great. That's really helpful. Well, the second question here, which your book is dealing with is this, how did the form and function of extra Calvinisticum develop through the rest of the 16th century? What can you say to that? Yeah, so you do see some interesting shifts. I argue in the book that the form largely maintains its coherence, although it becomes more elaborate over time. So that simple articulation, that Christ's body has ascended into heaven and is therefore no longer in the earthly sphere, um, is fairly simple. But you have to begin to reckon with the implications of that for things like Christology, and especially a doctrine known as the communicatio idiomatum, or the communication of attributes. This is an idea that talks about how is it that Christ, who has one person but two natures, has different sets of attributes? How is it that divine attributes and human attributes relate to one another? And how does one uh, articulate such things as script the scriptures do, such as the blood of God and these sorts of ideas? And so more and more has to go into understanding the nature of what's called Christological predication. How do we properly attribute attributes to Christ who is one person in two natures? Uh, 
So you see this developing early as Zwingli and Luther begin to really dig into their two positions. And from this Eucharistic context with Luther and Zwingli in the 1520s and onward, Zwingli will later write a few works that ground this much more fully in ancient Christian Christology, specifically the work of the Council of Chalcedon of 451. This is the classic definition of the Christological doctrine for the church. But from there, it gets picked up by other figures such as Calvin and Heinrich Bollinger, Zwingli's successor in Zurich, who make the shift to thinking not just about the body of Christ, but other implications. And this is coming out of debates with Lutherans at the time, specifically in a work called the Consensus Tigurinus, which is a um, consensus document on the nature of the Lord's Supper between Zurich and Geneva. They argue that Christ's body must exist in some sense locally in heaven. And so this opens up a whole new kind of front of debate here. The nature of heaven itself. Is it a place? Is it a state? In what sense is it a state or place? And all these things come up. As we shift into the second half of the 16th century, especially after about uh, 1550 or so, the arguments get more and more sophisticated. This is partially, I think I described it in the book, as a theological arms race, in that the Lutheran doctrine of ubiquity continues to get complex and they make more arguments. And so the reform must likewise become more complex and make fuller arguments. This is done largely by Vermigli in his work on the dialogue on the two natures, where he really expands the argumentative foundation for the extra. Now it's not just a kind of appeal to the nature of a body or the nature of the ascension, but he's bringing in the patristics to support his position He's giving sophisticated arguments about the nature of um, the hypostatic union or the fact that Christ is uniting in one person, the human and the divine natures. And they're using new methodologies to do this. Vermigli's using the dialogue form, which is a very interesting uh, genre taken from the humanist tradition. While later on, you have people like Sean Du, whom I mentioned, who says, we, we can't do this anymore. This style of theology is not arriving at greater clarity. So he moves over to an understanding of scholasticism, that we need to be clear on all of our premises. We need to make sure the logic of each of our premises is clearly connected to the one before it and to our conclusion. And his hope with this, as many other early scholastics, was to bring union through careful argumentation. Now, that is not what ended up happening as uh, scholasticism actually became an arms race of itself for more complicated areas. So we see this general shift from the extra being a polemical doctrine around the nature of the Eucharist to becoming an important locus of reflection on the entirety of Christology itself. And I should note, what's at stake here for these figures is to preserve salvation itself. So for the reform, they're arguing that if Christ's body becomes omnipresent, then you do know you no longer have a human body. And that means that Christ, to, to save, according to the Reformed, must be fully human and fully divine. If he ceases to be fully human by becoming something else, then he is no longer the mediator of salvation. So all of these concerns and these more and more complex arguments are ultimately geared towards that question. How is Christ able to save humanity by being one like us while remaining fully divine. 
Great. Well, you know, one thing I want to follow up on from this question, as we're thinking about kind of the development here in Reformed Orthodoxy is how you're approaching scholarship that's said in this later period of Reformed Orthodoxy that theologians are drawing the extra from more philosophical rather than biblical theological roots. Are you critiquing these these views, these scholars at all? Yeah. So that's actually one of my kind of main undercurrents of my argument. You'll see mm-hmm. even going all the way back to the polemics between the Lutherans and the Reformed in the 16th century, you see this division on the use of reason and scripture. It's not a gulf, like one would say, but there is a slight difference. So at the Marburg Colloquy, for instance, in 1529 between Luther and Zwingli, Luther will basically argue that, Zwingli, you are bringing in human reason here, where what we should do is bow to the teachings of scripture. Zwingli says, I want to bow to the teachings of scripture, but I need reason to understand what those teachings are. I need to be able to interpret these texts. And Luther at times will reject that scripture needs interpretation. And so you see from this early period, uh, a divergence in the kind of relative place of reason in theological thinking between these two camps. And that's a hallmark of the polemics between them on this and other issues um, pretty much since that day. But from these critiques, which are picked up by Karl Barth and um, Willis, as I mentioned before, comes this claim that the extra-Calvinism is fundamentally a piece of philosophical speculation based on reason and philosophy rather than scripture and theological reasoning. And the kind of poster child for this comes to be this Latin phrase, finitum non capax infinity which means the finite cannot contain the infinite, or the finite is not capable of the infinite. And this was argued by several Lutheran polemicists in the 20th century as a organizing principle of Reformed theology. And you can see how, because Calvin and others say that the divinity cannot be contained in the human nature, that there might be an issue here. And so one of the goals of the book is to trace out this phrase and its use throughout these theologians, because this comes up quite a bit during the scholarship. So that's kind of the issue here. That's the philosophical um, claim that people are making. I argue that this is actually not the case. The idea of the finite and the infinite do come up, but they're within the context of broader theological concerns. So from Zwingli onward, as I mentioned before, the main impetus here is soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. How must Christ be in order to save us? How must he be human and divine at the same time in one person? And that's really the driving focus here. It's not so much creating an airtight philosophical system, but trying to preserve the unique nature of Christ as mediator. And that connects to this idea of the finite being incapable of the infinite. When we look at this idea of the creator-creature distinction, God is God, infinite, eternal, impassable, omniscient, omnipotent, etc. And humanity seems to be the exact opposite. A human body is localized. It's finite. It's limited. It's time-bound, right? So how is it that the person of Christ can have these two qualities? And what the Reformed are trying to say is the finite does not become infinite to, because to be infinite is to be God. And so figures like Vermigli will argue from this idea, and he's and Vermigli is probably one of the first people to in this debate to use this 
uh, dictum of finite non-compact infinity. He argues that actually the solution here comes in the doctrine of Chalcedon that argues that Christ is in is one person in two natures that do not change or mix. And so he argues that Christ himself, the person of Christ, is simultaneously finite and infinite, but the natures, the divine nature remains infinite and the human nature remains finite. So all of this is not philosophical speculation, but sound theological reasoning. On top of that, one of the themes I seek to trace as I go through is the exegetical support given to these ideas. This begins all the way back with Zwingli, who grounds this in an exposition of the ascension. What does it mean that Christ leaves the earthly sphere to go be at the right hand of God the Father? And we see these exegetical elements build and build across this. And one of the main burdens here was to look at Protestant scholasticism or Reformed scholasticism specifically. Given the critique I mentioned of Willis, who claims that there's this disjunction between Calvin and the Reformers and the Reformed Scholastics, arguing quite clearly that they have fallen into philosophical speculation. So in my work on Shandu, on a work of his called On the True Nature or the True Human Nature of Jesus Christ, Shandu uses his scholastic method to do something quite interesting. He begins that with laying out what are called principia or foundational pieces of knowledge to build the rest of your argument on top of. And these principia, which he defines very clearly, are scripture alone. And so he begins his work by laying out 30 or 40 scriptural texts to prove each of the positions he is trying to hold. And only then does he go into debating theological reasoning and philosophical issues. But he keeps the opening idea and the foundational truth of these statements on scripture alone. So all that put together, I think to call this a philosophical doctrine is mistaken. It certainly has philosophical elements, but so do many aspects of theology. Anytime we're talking about persons and natures and attributes, we are using philosophical tools. But are those tools being used to elicit and to explain something from scripture? Or are they being used to explain something else? And what I argued with this is consistently throughout this period, from Zwingli's early development of it through Shandu's much more complex development, scripture remains the key element in how they're trying to describe the extra Calvinistic. Great. Well, I really appreciate your clarity there. And I think you make your case well. You know, these are really, yeah, I mean, they're, they're really fine points that require careful analysis. So it's, it's great to hear from you on how you've accomplished that. Um, you know, you've been really generous with your time now, but, but before we, we wrap up, Dr. Drake, can you share with our listeners what writing projects they might expect from you next? Yeah, so I'm currently still delving into the same period. Uh, I'm working on an article right now on fasting in the Reformation, I'm calling it Reforming the Fast. So arguing how is it that Luther and Zwingli and Calvin reconceptualized fasting in the Protestant context. So I'm fairly uh, interested in that at the moment. And my hopes is, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And my hope is ultimately to work towards another book uh, on Christology in this period as well, focusing rather on the two states of Christ, his humiliation and exaltation. Um, and so it'd be connected to the extra, but kind of going more broadly. What does it mean that Christ humiliates himself by becoming incarnate? 
And what do we understand by his exaltation at his resurrection and ascension? And there's a lot of very intricate questions that come about in the 16th century over this. So that's my hope for a future project on Reformation era Christology. Very good. Well, you know, we'll we'll definitely look out for that. It would be great to have you back on in the future. Um, you know, for now, though, thank you for writing this book. It's called The Flesh of the Word. It's out in 2021 now with Oxford University Press. Uh, and Dr. Drake, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.